Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Welcome back to episode two of Long COVID ME Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. My name is Dr. Hannah Preston, one of the co-chairs of the Trainees and Members Committee, and I am delighted to have Benita Kane back with us for episode two. So thank you very much for joining us again. Great to be here, Hannah. So what I thought we would do is maybe discuss some of the common kind of symptom clusters in more detail about kind of what are they, why do patients get these symptoms, what tests there might be for this and what basic or advanced treatments there might be for this. So I thought we could firstly start with POTS. What is POTS? Well, it stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And this is something that prior to the pandemic, I hadn't heard very much about at all, didn't know very much, but it's been around four decades, but only really defined properly in the late 80s and early 90s. As the name suggests, it's a condition where patients struggle to tolerate the upright position. The reason this happens is when we're lying down or when we're sitting down, it's relatively straightforward to perfuse the brain because the body is not having to work against gravity. But because we have evolved from mammals that were sort of on four legs at one stage, we have had to, as humans, adapt to that upright position to keep blood flowing to our brains. So when we go from that lying to standing position, a number of important mechanisms kick in, which mean that we can keep that column of blood flowing up and so what happens in POTS is some of those mechanisms fail and you get a reflex tachycardia, a stress response. You can then get a very inefficient pumping mechanism because the heart's going too fast and blood continues to pool in the lower limbs and the patient can get a number of unpleasant symptoms. So dizziness, feeling faint, lightheaded, palpitations, breathless, chest pain. They will often describe their hands and their feet going purple, something we call acrocyanosis, cognitive dysfunction, poor sleep, headaches, nausea. So it's a really disabling condition. It can be very much from the mild end of the spectrum where people are just a bit dizzy and exercise intolerant to being completely bedbound and unable to tolerate even sitting. It's poorly recognised and I think poorly treated generally. And it's associated with long COVID. It's quite common. There's some reports that 50-60% of patients will develop a degree of POTS with long COVID and it's well established with MECFS and also other syndromes like the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, fibromyalgia and that chronic disease spectrum. That's a really good rundown of what patients might be experiencing. How can we as physicians diagnose this? Are there certain tests that we can use along with the history that the patient is describing? I'm glad you mentioned history, Hannah, because that is absolutely key to the patient's have to have the classical symptoms and 
historically, they've got to have these symptoms persistent for a period, two to three months, which fits in with the diagnosis of long COVID as well. You can do a very, very simple bedside test called the active stun test, where you ask the patient to lie down, you make sure they're nice and calm, you've got a resting heart rate, and then you ask them to stand up and you measure what happens over 10 minutes. There is also a variation of that called the NASA lean test, where you ask the patient to lean against a wall with their feet about six to eight inches away from the wall. And you take measurements of heart rate and blood pressure throughout that 10 minute period. The definition of POTS is a sustained rise in the heart rate over 10 minutes with no drop in the blood pressure. And that heart rate rise would need to be 30 beats per minute over the baseline or a tachycardia of over 120 when the patient's standing. Now, it's really important to understand that this forms part of a spectrum of disease all the way from somebody who's got an inappropriate sinus tachycardia to someone who's got orthostatic intolerance. In other words, they just don't tolerate standing, but they don't necessarily hit that 30 beats per minute to POTS where you get that sustained heart rise. And then you've also got the people with postural hypotension as well. So there's a whole range and a spectrum. And in fact, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society have reclassified POTS as part of a wider syndrome. And I think the important thing is that patients often will benefit from treatment, even if they don't hit that 30, if they've got the classical symptoms, they still sometimes benefit from the non-pharmacological treatment and the pharmacological treatment. And I've seen some patients be denied the treatment for POTS because they haven't hit that exact 30 cutoff. So always, always take a clear history, interpret the test in the context of the person in front of you. Bear in mind there's diurnal variation. It might be different in the morning than it is in the afternoon. It might be different day to day. And the 30 cutoff is the diagnostic criteria for POTS, but people might benefit from treatment even if they don't hit that. There is also more formal testing in the way of a tilt table test where patients are strapped to a table and then tilted over a period of time. I don't tend to order those very often because they're really unpleasant for the patients. You're effectively trying to make them pass out by doing this test and it can be really, really unpleasant. I find that you can generally glean what you need to know from a NASA lean test. But sometimes if there is diagnostic uncertainty, doing the more formal test is helpful. You've mentioned non-pharmacological treatments and pharmacological treatments. So can you talk about what we can offer these patients at the moment? Yes, I think one of the really encouraging things is POTS is treatable and patients can have their lives transformed by fairly simple interventions. So firstly, what we want to do is top up the circulating blood volume. Patients often have low circulating blood volumes due to some complex pathophysiological things going on with the renin-angiotensin system, etc. So we recommend at least two and a half to three litres of fluid a day, but also supplementing back with increased salt intake so that you are getting the fluid into the vascular space. And we recommend between six and 10 grams of salt in addition daily. Now that's quite difficult to get in just through diet, so that can be done through electrolyte solution. But that's a really, really important part of the treatment. There's also then measures to minimise the pooling of blood in the legs through compression and or strengthening the leg muscles. Best done through exercises that don't involve being against gravity, so sort of recumbent exercises. Sleep hygiene is really important because patients will often have a sympathetic overdrive, they'll have adrenaline surges that can interfere with sleep. 
And things like eating small, regular meals. So often people with POTS won't tolerate having large meals because they'll get a bit of a dumping sensation after eating as the blood supply is diverted to the digestive system. And so there are some of these non-pharmacological things that can really make a difference. Compression stocking should be above the knee, ideally, and some patients wear an abdominal band as well because the abdominal vasculature is really important in keeping that flow of blood to the brain. And then you've got your drug treatment, things like beta blockers or ifabradine I'll use depending on if they've got any contraindications to beta blockers or if their blood pressure is a little bit on the low side. And then you get into more specialist treatments like midodrine, pyridostigmine, fludrocortisone, clonidine, there's a few others and they variably work either by helping peripheral blood vessel constriction or by stimulating parasympathetic responses to counter that kind of sympathetic overdrive. Finally, holistic therapies for patients, so anything that can calm down that sympathetic overdrive. A lot of treatments which form that cornerstone of Eastern medicine, which we largely ignore in the West, but is absolutely rooted in science. So things like acupuncture and reflexology, cold water therapy, cryotherapy, meditation, mindfulness, all of those treatments can really help counter that sympathetic overdrive of POTS. Wonderful. That is a great rundown of what patients might be experiencing, what tests we can do and how we can try and help them. So moving on to another area, there's been growing evidence to show that there is ongoing immune dysregulation in these patients. Can we run through this? Yes, there's a lot of work going on in this field, a lot of research. Anecdotally, what I see in my patients is some of them will have a low-grade neutropenia, so just very, very mildly low neutrophils. Some of the patients who had more detailed immune tests will have low CD4s. CD8 tests. Again, not low enough that anyone's going to be alarmed or concerned about it or want to do anything, but just low-grade reduction. I'm seeing lots of positive autoantibodies like ANA, antiphospholipid, a couple of patients with positive anchors, but they don't fit into any particular disease patterns, the rheumatologists will generally say this is non-specific and discharge them. And at the moment, what we're doing largely is just observing what happens over time. The few patients who have been lucky enough to have more detailed autoantibody tests, we're finding have often got positive GPCR antibodies. So these are G-protein coupled receptor. So things like your beta-1 adrenergic receptor, ACE2 receptors, muscarinic receptors, things that are very important in autonomic regulation and also management of fluid and blood pressure in the body. And they're often raised. And again, these are a target for new drugs, but also there's some early evidence that treatments like plasmapheresis or inospheresis can help you just literally filter those autoantibodies out. Lots of patients are telling me they're now prone to infection, whereas they weren't prior to long COVID. They pick up lots of viral infections, seeing Klebsiella infection, UTIs. So I think it's really important that people with long COVID are protected from reinfection, particularly if they're returning to work in an NHS setting, because there does seem to be this signal that their immune systems are not functioning as well as they were before. There's also a syndrome called mast cell activation syndrome. Would you be able to expand on this for our listeners? 
Absolutely. Mast cells are an important part of our immune system. So they're there as a defense against things like parasites, but also have a very important role in allergic disease. And what I hadn't appreciated is that mast cells are stuffed into every organ in the body. And they're often found at that boundary between the tissues and the external environment. So for example, mucosal surfaces like the gut and the lungs and the skin, importantly, brain and also around the blood vessels. And they contain a huge number of granules that contain histamine and many other inflammatory mediators, things like IL-4, IL-13, TNF-alpha. So once they're activated, they release these mediators into tissues and propagate more inflammation. And they can recognize and interact with multiple, multiple different allergens, but also pathogens and viruses. So a classic example of mast cell mediated inflammation would be things like an asthma exacerbation or an anaphylaxis. Body encounters an allergen, mast cells activated, huge release of histamine, which could cause either those local or systemic effects. And when this happens on a chronic scale in the organs and tissues, it can give rise to multi-organ symptoms. So things like brain fog, palpitations, breathlessness, gut symptoms, bone and joint pain and inflammation, urinary symptoms, menstrual dysregulation can all be part of mast cell activation. And you've got, again, a spectrum of disease from patients with long COVID who have a worsening of allergic symptoms. They may have a worsening of their hay fever or pre-existing asthma to full-blown mast cell activation syndrome with raised IgE, widespread rashes, eosinophilia, urticaria. And I'm also seeing many patients with new food intolerances as well. What's quite interesting is it's very common for patients with long COVID to have a history of asthma, allergies, hay fever, IBS, irritable bladder in their medical history. It's difficult because this is a very poorly researched and recognised condition. It's something that no specialty really owns. So patients often fall into this hole between allergy, immunology and dermatology with none of those specialties really owning it. And so diagnosis is quite tricky because most clinicians don't have access to the tests. Tests could be borderline or normal. So some of the lab tests that we have are things like measuring serum tryptase levels or measuring 24-hour urinary prostaglandins that they are not kind of 100%. So this is often a clinical diagnosis based on having symptoms in at least two organ systems and measuring a response to treatment, whether you treat the patients and they improve measuring that, and that can give an idea. I tend to just treat the patients with the known treatments if I'm highly suspicious they have it, see if they improve and do a trial of treatment for three months. But I'm not endorsing that approach for non-specialists, of course. And with this kind of heightened allergic response for some people, are certain antihistamines at the cornerstone of that treatment? And is there anything else with regards to, like, I guess, diet and things like that that patients need to consider? Yeah. So as always, careful history, specific questions about allergic disease, clinical exam, really important, review of the bloods. You'll get clues like raised IgE or raised eosinophils. But the treatments generally are, again, very treatable disease. H1 and H2 blockades. So H1 blockers, things like different kinds of antihistamines. I tend to use vexafenidine or cetirizine or loratadine. H2 blockade with famotidine. I tend to start low and slow because many patients with this condition are sensitive to the excipients in the drugs and can actually react to the drugs, which can make it quite tricky. And you sometimes need to try different antihistamines to find one that suits. 
people with sleep issues, for example, might benefit from those slightly sedative antihistamines, and I give those at night. And then you get into slightly more specialist medication like ketotifen, sodium chromoglycate, montelukast, and if people are at the more severe end of the spectrum, with urticaria, they may be eligible for monoclonal antibodies such as omelizumab. But these are all really old school drugs that have been around for years. We've got lots of experience with them. They're generally pretty safe. I have a very low threshold for giving patients a trial of treatment. And again, can be life transforming if you get this right and treat their mast cell activation. Amazing. That's really good to go over. I then wondered if we could talk a bit more about post-exertional malaise. We mentioned it briefly in the first episode, but I think it's probably really important to go over given how significant it is for patients and how many patients with long COVID or ME chronic fatigue syndrome have this as one of their most, I guess, disabling symptoms. Yes, incredibly disabling. And I get a lot of patients who say to me, my family don't understand, my friends don't understand. They see me looking okay. And it's really hard to explain. I talk about fatigue as not just being tiredness. Fatigue is a really disabling symptom. Fatigue is somebody going for a shower or brushing their teeth and then feeling like they need to lie down afterwards. It's very, very challenging to imagine what that's like unless you've actually been through it. Post-exertional malaise is the worsening of symptoms following either minor physical or mental exertion and that cognitive fatigue can be really quite marked for patients. And one of the cruel things about PEM, as it's abbreviated too, is that the symptoms can accumulate and typically worsen after 12 to 48 hours after an activity and it can last for days or weeks. So patients can feel well, they'll overdo it and then two days later they'll be in bed for a week. The analogy I often use is the one of a battery. So imagine a phone battery. Most people who are healthy wake up with 100% charge in the morning. People with ME and long COVID can wake up with 20 or 30%. And then every single thing they do will drain a bit of that battery. And so they have to recharge regularly. So they have to really plan their day. They have to understand what their energy envelope is. That's the totality of the energy they have to spend that day. And they have to spend it very, very wisely. Often when other people, like friends or family, see them, they're at their best because they've rested for a day in order to be able to see their friends. And then friends or family won't necessarily see the aftermath of that when they get home and they've crashed out for a day or two. So it's an isolating symptom. It's very, very disabling. And pacing is absolutely key to managing it, not pushing, not exercising outside of limitations. And ideally, people need to stop their activity and save their energy before they get symptomatic. By the time they feel exhausted, they've done too much. So it can be very, very challenging to manage. You talked about pacing. That's the cornerstone of treating this aspect. Yes, absolutely. And it is a completely new way of living. And it's so important that people are trained to do this properly because it goes against everything we've ever been taught, you know, about pushing through and exercising. One of the things that is quite helpful is measuring things like heart rate variability. So not heart rate, which is number of beats per minute. It's the actual variation in the interval between beats and it's a very very good marker of the stress on the autonomic nervous system so if you've got a nice springy autonomic nervous system that's working really well you should have lots of variation between the heartbeats because you're adapting to standing sitting exercising but in long covid 
and ME, you often get very low HRV, lose that resilience in the autonomic nervous system. And you can track HRV using various gadgets, but there's a very, very good app called Visible, which has been developed by someone with long COVID for people with long COVID and ME. And you can track symptoms, HRV, and use that as a tool for pacing. Because often what someone's brain is telling them they can do versus what their body wants to do can be two very different things and people get that wrong a lot of the time so having an objective measure to help with pacing is very very useful and visible is free for anybody to download it involves using a finger pulse measurement once a day through the light on your phone and you can track that over time it's absolutely brilliant i recommend that to all of my patients That's great. And I guess it's also about patients gaining awareness and understanding of what their limitations are for their body at certain times as well. Yeah, the important thing is that it won't be the same every single day. And the nature of this is it fluctuates and there'll be periods where people can do more and there'll be periods where they have to row back and do less. And lots of things influence that. External stresses in particular. So people are under a lot of cognitive stress or they're trying to do return to work, for example, that can actually ironically harm them in a way and mean they can do less. And so because there's all of these different elements, as well as physical stress that can influence it, it's a real balancing act. And as I say, it's a completely new way of life. It's learning how to live in a completely different way. Yeah, definitely. I then wanted to chat a bit about women's health because I think there's been some new insights from people who have long COVID with the impact on women's health. So would you mind kind of delving into that a little bit further? Yes, well, the ovaries have ACE2 receptors on them and like every other organ in the body are not spared from the effects of COVID. Anecdotally, I'm seeing lots and lots of women's issues. So firstly, women being pushed into perimenopause much, much earlier. So women in their early 40s, for example. And of course, the symptoms of perimenopause hugely overlap with the symptoms of long COVID, fatigue, dysautonomia, headaches, brain fog, etc. Anecdotally, I'm seeing lots of menstrual issues, heavy bleeding, women who are postmenopausal starting to bleed again, particularly with acute COVID infection. Ladies who've had stable uterine fibroids, finding the fibroids are increasing in size. In fact, I've got one patient who's now waiting to have surgery because she's got fibroid the size of a baby. Endometrial dysfunction as well. And let's not forget men, actually. You know, COVID is a vascular disease and there are some reports that one in four men with long COVID will suffer with erectile dysfunction. It's all poorly researched and let's not underestimate the psychological impact of all of this. I also see women whose long COVID symptoms get much worse before their period or during their period, bearing in mind that, you know, that's a monthly occurrence that again can be quite disabling. So treating this, I've had patients who, again, lives have been transformed by stabilizing the hormones with HRT. We recommend the body identical HRT because these formulations are more natural. They don't have the same risk of blood clotting as the synthetic hormones and are much safer. And lots of women also benefiting from testosterone cream. The problem is it's quite difficult to get these treatments on the NHS. So people are being forced to go into the private sector to get these treatments often. But again, it's a promising treatment, but very, very under-researched. Well, let's hope that there is more research, I guess, coming through into that area. Well, indeed, all areas, really. Basic tests for patients. What basic tests 
can we do or do you think patients should have? And it's clearly important to interpret these tests in the context of each patient rather than having kind of, as you said earlier, arbitrary cutoffs and stuff. We need to individualize these tests and review them based on all our other findings that we have. Yes. And I think the role of basic blood tests is firstly to rule out other conditions that long COVID can mimic. We don't want to be missing an occult malignancy or undiagnosed thyroid disease, for example. So to rule out the other conditions, but also to find the treatable traits of people with long COVID. So as a basic kind of blood profile, we'd sort of say the usual routine tests and these NFTs, but also vitamin D, cortisol, a random cortisol are quite useful. A lot of these patients with chronic fatiguing illnesses have a blunted cortisol response. So the levels will be in the normal range, but they just won't get that morning surge of cortisol. And if the cortisol is low, then it's worth doing a synaclin test just to make sure there's not an underlying problem with that axis. Thyroid function tests, as mentioned, B12 folate, ferritin, lipid profile. So long COVID seems to be causing issues with both iron metabolism and lipid metabolism. And I don't understand it, but almost all of my patients have low end normal ferritin and most of them have abnormal lipid profile as well. And so therefore then you can start thinking about using drugs like statins, which also help with the endothelium and with the vascular dysregulation we're seeing. Autoimmune screen important because autoimmune conditions can of course cause multi-system symptoms as well. And then your basic investigations like chest x-ray, ECG. Many patients have had 24-hour tapes, echoes, blood pressure monitoring, CT angiogram, CTPA, CT coronary angiogram tests. Those who are kind of lucky enough to access private tests have often had more detailed immune profiling, cytokine tests, fluorescence microscopy to look the microclotting and abnormal platelet activation. But something that really, really strikes me when I see patients is they've often seen many, many healthcare professionals over two to three years. They've had lots and lots of tests. They've actually had very little in terms of treatment. Tests are important. They have their place, particularly to rule out other conditions. But what we're not seeing is that translating into actually having treatment for their very debilitating symptoms. So Yes, I think it's important to listen to the patient's symptoms, think about the common pathophysiologies that we know are at play in long COVID and offer patients treatments that we know are making a difference. Excellent. Yeah, no, I would agree that is really important. So now, if it's okay with you, I just wanted to touch on what can we do for patients that are coming into hospital? Have you got any basic tips to give to our listeners, so junior doctors, registrars, consultants, anybody seeing these patients who have either got a diagnosis of long COVID or, or might not, but it's probably suspected. Yes, I mean, these patients are going to be in every single hospital clinic, but often pitch up to A&E as well, because especially if they have undiagnosed POTS, they can pass out, they can faint, they can become very, very tachycardic. And often their experiences, they go into hospital, they have a baseline ECG, troponin, a chest x-ray, and they're told everything's fine, off you go. And I think it was William Osler whose famous quote is, listen to your patient and they are telling you the diagnosis. And that never is a truer word for POTS. They will say, I feel dizzy when I stand up. I'm feeling faint. My heart rate's racing and going up. And they're often told that it's anxiety and sent home with ongoing symptoms. These things can be picked up by simple bedside testing. So getting the patient to stand, measuring what happens over a period of 10 minutes. 
appreciate that people in A&E often don't have 10 minutes, but you can train a healthcare assistant, you can train your nursing staff to do these tests. And it's just having that curious mind. If the patient has had an episode where they've lost consciousness and they're telling you about these chronic symptoms, your tests are normal. It's not thinking, well, clearly they're mad. There's nothing wrong with them. Off they go. They need to stop being anxious. It's thinking, well, what am I missing? Are we doing the right tests? Does this test done at this one point in time tell me the whole truth about this person's illness? How do I interpret this test in the context of this person in front of me? And it's not gaslighting the patients. You know, they are really ill. It's a really debilitating illness. And the vast, vast, vast majority of patients are not malingering or finding some sort of positive reinforcement through being ill. They want to be better. So it's just listening to the patients. And if you're not sure, refer them on to a service where there is a bit more expertise in this area rather than just discharging them into the ether. Those would probably be my top tips that I think the Nusseline test is the single most important thing that I do in the clinic. You can get an enormous amount of information from somebody by just observing what happens to them in that standing position. Excellent. That's really insightful. I think as we should all be doing, you know, in our day-to-day practice in medicine is really listening to what the patient's saying and how their symptoms fit in the context with their life and their day-to-day function. So we've talked a lot about a lot of different symptoms that patients have, how we might currently use basic treatments to try and help them a bit. But sadly, we are not fixing these patients and the problem that is going on and is only going to increase So what kind of emerging research is going on out there? Because there's a large proportion of patients who are going to be suffering with these symptoms. Absolutely. The last ONS survey showed that 2 million people in the UK were reporting long COVID symptoms, of which half a million were quite severely impacted by the illness. So that is quite a large chunk of our population who are part of our workforce. A lot of these patients are young. So it is important and it's something which the scale of research, unfortunately, is a drop in the ocean. But having said that, we should be optimistic there is a lot of research going on around the world. Some of the promising areas are looking at treating endothelial disease and the known abnormalities we see in clotting physiology. So using things like antiplatelets, heparins, anticoagulants, statins. Need more research. We need the trials and the safety data, but I think this is going to be a cornerstone of future treatment. The gut is an important part of pathophysiology that we haven't really touched on in the podcast, but leaky gut is thought to be a very important driver of chronic inflammation. So there's a huge amount of work going on, particularly by one group in the States, looking for viral persistence, looking at drugs that can help fix the leaky gut. Antivirals are clearly something of interest in non-COVID and that viral persistence might be driving the symptoms. And there is some trials now of antivirals that are starting or underway. In terms of those immune abnormalities, things like IBIG might be a promising early treatment. Again, there's not enough evidence just at the moment. There is also a drug called BC007, which neutralizes those GPCR antibodies that I was talking about earlier. And that's showing, again, some early promising evidence. And then there's treatments that are aimed at treating the dysautonomia. So things like vagus nerve stimulation and non-pharmacological treatment, stellate ganglion blocks might be helpful in some patients. And then at that severe end of the spectrum, we've got those plasmapheresis type treatments like help apheresis, ionospheresis. Again, 
small studies in the early stages. But overall, I would say that anyone who's got long COVID or ME should be hopeful that we are in the next few years going to start really seeing some treatments that can make a difference. Excellent. I think it's good to end on a positive note and it would be wonderful if we really made some progress for everybody out there. So I just wanted to round things up and say thank you for coming on and chatting through both of our episodes. If you've listened to this episode and you haven't listened to the first, go back and listen to the first one. If you can, share with friends, colleagues who you think might find this useful. Arguably, I think most people should find this useful and insightful and we're going to link a couple of important links from our discussion into the show notes so do go and check this out and I just want to say thank you once again if patients want to hear kind of more from you are you on social media or anything where people can find you and do you have any useful pointers we might put those in the show notes as well of where people can go to find good kind of validated further education Yes, there's lots of resources out there. We will put them in the show notes, as you say. There's a really good website for POTS that's run by Sanjay Gupta, who's a cardiologist with an interest, and he's got lots of really, really good videos. If you look him up, that's one I signpost people to. I have a YouTube channel called The Long COVID Clinic, What You Can Do. It's in its early stages, but there's a few good resources on there. And I'm going to be doing a series of live streamed chats with different experts over the next 12 months. There's the World Health Network resource page, POTS UK. The charities have very good information, particularly long COVID kids, if you've got a young one with long COVID. So there's lots of stuff out there, lots of really, really good resources, and we will signpost people to them. Amazing. That's great. So thank you so much. And if you can like this episode, if you like it, share with colleagues and subscribe to the rest of our Clinical Conversations podcast so you can get them straight to your podcast streaming device without needing to search. That would be amazing. So thank you very much and goodbye.